Welcome to Netflix and the Skill, where we go deep into our favorite movies and how they were made. Come join us. Welcome back to another episode of Netflix and Skill in the new year and also the new decade. This is your co-host, Matt McGuinness. And I'm joining him. This is Way to Be. So recently we had a screening of The Village, and I'm not going to say his name right. Can you help me out with this, M. Night Sh- M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Okay, great. Just to make sure, because I'm just going to be calling him Shamilan. Well, you got to wonder if he abbreviated the the first name for that reason, because p- possibly it's a mouthful. So I think it's sleek. M. Dot Night Shyamalan. He's got yes. a little bit of everything in there. Mysterious. Yeah. 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 He's a mysterious character, and his films uh, tend to be that way. And uh, he's gone through quite an evolution with his work. Uh, I think the films we will discuss, the main film we'll discuss tonight, is kind of back in his heyday, in his prime. Um, but hopefully one day he can reach his former glory. So just a caveat before we hopefully explore everything that we can about this movie. More so than the other episodes, this episode is kind of geared um, very much for those who haven't seen the movie as much as those who have. It's not like a prerequisite that you must see the movie to hopefully join us in this breakdown of how it was made and uh, what the movie is looking to achieve, right? Under the microscope. So we're going to try and dissect what the movie is looking to say and examine some of the production um, issues that, I suppose, affected the end results and uh, shaped its success as well. So we're going to really try and get to the bottom of this relationship between the director and the cinematographer, and this is a really interesting one in that regard. So, as always with these podcasts, we go through the story, we go through the aesthetic and the sound, and then we wrap it up with six degrees and a quote. So, let's go straight into the story. And yeah, this movie has always divided critics. It's really interesting in that way. It's sort of polarizing, maybe because the script was leaked, revealing the twist um, prematurely. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it was judged almost before it came out by people who hadn't seen it, but who had read through the script. And oh, that's a shame because the twist, you know, this is one of his more subtle twists. And obviously, previous films he did had very big, shocking twists. But this one, uh, you know, reveals itself kind of slowly and in a much more organic manner. Um, so that's that's a shame to have that first viewing tainted um, for anyone. I would never wish to spoil that kind of thing for them. I think that it changed the ending of the movie somewhat, but it's unclear if they did that because it was leaked or not. But I really like this movie because it aims really high, but not on the surface, not at face value, not in a literal way. Would you say that's that's fair to say? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's almost, dare I say, minimalistic um, in, the, in the face value of it. Um, but I think deep down there are some core issues, some core uh, concepts that are being expressed that have major implications. We're going to try and explain why I like it, um, you know, in this way that you find yourself do to someone who just really doesn't like it, which is always an interesting conversation. <laughs> um, okay, so at the heart of the village, it's it's like a metaphor about the wider world. Um, mm-hmm. It's like the herd versus the individual. Mm. And if you stray from the metaphor at the point of action, which is when the monsters appear, mm-hmm. um, the ending and consequently, the whole movie is a disappointment. Um, so the whole movie is a gamble that hangs on this metaphor, I think. But I think it works because as well as the personal metaphor, there's also something wider. It's, it's like a political metaphor about population control and how you can use information or disinformation mm. um, like a weapon, like wow. tribalism. Um, there are literally those who we don't speak of in the movie. So did mm. you feel that metaphor there? or There's, there's many layers to this film and many levels and things that could be applied to. So I think I got more caught up on the expression of kind of violence in the world at large versus the simplicity and peacefulness in in a small community. But for you to apply this mentality, like political science implications to it. So please go on. Yeah, I think so. I was thinking for a while about what the metaphor is, but it definitely wants to say something. I'm not sure how intentionally it is, but... For example, you know the watchtowers in the movie, they're they're mm-hmm. like borders appearing to protect. Um mm-hmm. but actually they're they're keeping people in their prisons, mm-hmm. their walls. Mm-hmm. Um the symbolism here is sort of um interesting. Um if you can keep people fearful of some external entity, then you can actually exert a level of control on them mm-hmm. that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. Um much like what's happening in um 
across the world, um, like populism almost. And there's these guards who are guarding these dividing zones. It's interesting that they're actually the weak characters. They're not the strong ones, not the mm. great protectors you'd hope for. And mm. I think that's trying to get at something there. Wow. The whole idea of protection from the outside world, like us versus them mentality, it's all a falsehood. It doesn't really serve anyone in the micro community. And this becomes really obvious when the male protagonist, um, Lucius Hunt, played by Joaquin Phoenix, um, interesting Lucius Hunt, the clues in the name. Um, <laughs> he's dependent on modern medicine after being attacked from within the community. Lucius is um, almost a mute to begin with, um, perhaps because he's never bought into the falsehood spoken by the others. Mm. And, you know, again, they're trying to say something there that um, he is vulnerable um, because of the, uh, I suppose, the bubble that he's living in, and he's not protected by that. But I love, I love seeing, it's all very well said, and I love seeing a strong character like Joaquin Phoenix, a strong actor, play such a kind of like subtly strong character, but very, very latent, like he's, he's, he's soft-spoken, he reads everything off a sheet of paper like a little schoolboy, um, he, he, he's, he's truthful to a fault, and it's beautiful actually, I, I really believe it. And it's a the, the the great thing about the little microcosm of the village is these character archetypes that represent innocence, bravery, uh, truth, you know, and they all the characters kind of you know madness, you know, all the characters kind of represent different qualities. Mm. Yeah, I agree. You know, he's not the most confident character, and it's hard for him to be outspoken. But he um, he has to forge his own identity and not conform, and it it has that sort of rebellious streak in a in a subtle way, the loudest voice isn't necessarily the one you should listen to the most. What you made me think of is like, none of the characters are over the top. I don't think there's a single character that you antagonize in the film. There's no villain. Mm. Yeah, it's you know? not clear cut. And and that's beautiful because the, the, it is a town of innocence. And, and aside from the kind of the elders, again, I don't want to spoil it if they haven't seen it, but who kind of know more than the citizens. Mm. Um, there's no bad intentions. Nobody has a, b- a bad bone in their body, you know, yeah. with, with, at least with any intention, uh, you know, genuine intention mm. to be so. Yeah, th- there's depth to it. You know, it's, it's not just superficial. Um, the idea that you should sort of compartmentalize negative emotion, you know, serving the character as these controlled doses of fear, scaring them, because otherwise they'll inevitably go the way of the elders and something really bad will happen to them. Um, it, it's interesting. It suggests that the elders are kind of projecting their life experiences onto younger people. And that's another thing the movie is, I think, touching upon. I think what the film gets really right is that it's making these statements about society, but it, it does it so much better than in a kind of blatant modern day film like, let's say, The Hunger Games, right? Where the game is yeah. imposed on the people to make them fearful and I think I said I said this in the screenings, but it just doesn't never really uh, yeah. s- sells to me. I don't buy the idea. Whereas in this little town, they've all had their hardships. I kind of get it. I get why each individual might want to try this and just leave that all behind. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that that feeling that you get there, what you've just described, is linked to his unorthodox directing approach. Mm. Um, and we'll get into that. Um, in the aesthetic more because it's to do with the relationship between himself and uh, Roger Deakins who's mm-hmm. the cinematographer for the mm-hmm. movie but yeah it's it's not straightforward and that makes it interesting and realistic you're not sort of forced to feel certain ways about certain things and they also have um, subtle sound cues to that end so we'll, we'll look at that shortly as well um, but with the story, there's a key scene where Ivy ventures out into the unknown. And this is an editing point, but it starts off with this, uh, there's a J cut, really nice cut. It's so good because you see her sort of leaning against a rock and then you hear footsteps. And it's the one moment in the movie where you really feel, you really experience her perspective. Mm-hmm. Because of course, she is blind. She can't see who's approaching her. And you go through that uncertainty with her in that moment. Um, you as the viewer play out a multitude of different scenarios just within a second or so, just because of that that J-cut, you hear steps coming and all sorts of things play out. And I, I think arguably they could have done more to that end to show us her perspective. But, you know, we don't want to be spoon-fed. We don't want to be too biased. And that's important to respect that that line there. You're not trying to make people feel everything about every character. It's a good point. And it's difficult to do so. And, and in a way, I think... 
they do a, a pretty good job of, of showing us a, a milieu of, of different characters. Again, I, I said it before, but I think with her, I've never seen a character expressing, you know, kind of capturing or, or sincerely, you know, utilizing blindness in, in, in such a creative way. It really works for me. It really feels real. But I think you're right. Maybe they didn't go far enough because well, I'm sure we'll get to it, but they could have played a lot more with our imagination and, and with sound mm-hmm. and, and with even cinematica elements that maybe didn't quite hit the mark um, later on in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect movie. I really like it because of the sort of controlled vagueness of it, but mm. there's definitely bits that could have gone very inner, very sort of Michel Gondry-like from Eternal Sunshine that we yeah, talked about before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, the core of the movie is this scene where you've got these two supposed, these two supposed protectorates of the village, um, attending with her in the forest to protect her, mm. but then they abandon her. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. They have these stones, which are like, um, an empty promise of sort of strength or safety, a placebo or a construct for courage. Yep. But ultimately they have no inner fortitude because their characters were really never questioning of the whole um, status quo of the village. That's true. And uh, I mean, they, they make reasonable points. Like, you know, why were we never told of these magic stones before? I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a bit suspect and you can't really hate them for being cowards because they were brought up to be cowards. They were brought up not to question, not to go beyond. And again, that brings us back to the two dynamic characters, um, who, who, you know, maybe, uh, the female character is, is is brave through her blindness because she's that already takes a lot of courage to to live in a world without sight and um the male character is perhaps just the strong silent type who kind of um has been in his mind constructing his own ambitions and ideas and you do hear a tiny tidbit about when he was younger he was the one who broke the record of uh lasting the longest in the woods so i think he has something to prove to himself and he's he's eager to uh to rise to to the occasion and and we see that happen in a very romantic way and i and i love that scene i'm sorry if i'm jumping ahead with him and uh and the female lead where <laughs> there's like this point where you you can't tell quite tell if he's being annoyed by her mm. and he says to her you know she says to him uh why why can't you say the things that are on your mind and and he's like well why do, must you say everything that's on your mind it's a really clever writing because then he does tell her it, what good does it do me to tell you all these romantic things? But it's it makes it even more poignant than had he just said them outright. So he's, he's yeah. a very uh, muscled, kind of cleaved character. Yeah, it's really well done. And I love that back and forth. That's sort of the core of the movie again. I mean, I said it was the other scene, but I think that really is the sort of emotional core. To me, that's the core. Uh, you know, Ivy and, and Lucius, I think, because I'm a romantic, but not everyone's going to see it as a romantic film. But at the end of the day, you cannot disregard the fact that the whole hero's journey comes about out of wanting to save the life of her of her beloved. Ivy's really interesting. She has a deeper responsibility because she develops her own understanding of the world because of her unique perspective. She knows the monsters aren't real, but the thought of what her father is protecting her from or them from is very real and she's trying to figure out what they're being protected from and that takes even more bravery and you can see her trembling not because of the monsters or the stones or them disappearing but because of the unknown right and her name is ivy so she keeps growing she's not easily defeated and she climbs a wall of ivy so it's almost like she is wow. in some way the forest or i don't know if that was intentional no that's really cool yeah she she overcomes that great wall that no other citizen was able to do and and it and it's a very personal wall in a way i didn't think of that you're finding all these little easter eggs and clues well, well done matt well you know like i said maybe michelle gondry could have done something there where she really becomes the ivy you know um, <laughs> maybe that was cheesy and but there's definitely little moments where you think to yourself hmm i wonder if they could have emphasized or taken you inside ivy's mind at that point in a, in a more abstract artistic way because it does lend itself to these moments but they don't always take them but um it, it's more of a theatrical approach what they went for in terms of removing you at certain times they're very careful about that you're not you're not going deep into anyone's mind particularly too much you're, you're somewhat removed and that's 
um, part of the aesthetic, which we'll get on to now yeah. um, in a short bit, talking about um, Deakins and his approach to filming this. So for the next bit, there is a, um, a couple of really interesting quotes from Deakins and Shyamalan. And I thought we could maybe do a bit of role play here. All right, sure. Um, just to help get across perhaps the duality between them. <laughs> let's just start this bit off with um, a quote from Deakins that I will say. Okay. And I'd like you to kind of do the Shyamalan quote <laughs> so right. that people can really clearly listen <clears throat> to the the fact that it was very much a double-headed approach to this movie. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to convey the outcome as to why things went a certain way with some of the scenes. Okay. Just to emphasize this, I'm going to start off with a quote from Roger Deakins. Night storyboards are very detailed and they rarely change on set while shooting the film. I occasionally found them a bit restrictive and the adherence to them a little extreme. Joel and Ethan Cohn storyboard their films just as thoroughly, but on set those ideas can and often do change. But with Night, the film is basically shot before he actually gets on set. It's an interesting way of working and very brave because he shoots very little coverage. So you've got long shots <laughs> demanding of the actors as well, quite mm-hmm. abstract, quite minimalist. And let's just... You know who that reminds me of, actually? Hitchcock. He used to storyboard everything, and he actually is famously quoted for saying, once I get on set, the fun's already over. It's just getting the job done. Interesting. Because he's he's done it all in his head. And, you know, they're two very different directors. I've never really been a huge storyboarder, and I kind of wish I was. I w- because I wish I could be that disciplined and, and also that f- forward thinking. Um, so that's something I hope to team up with maybe with a cinematographer on. So let's, do we want to hear from Shyamalan's perspective here? Yeah, because you can start to see this picture unfold of how the particular approach that is very artistic can be kind of painful to, to work with and restrictive in a certain sense for those working with that sort of an artist. Yeah. So um, if you can read out Shyamalan's part. So Shyamalan says, as a director, I need to take a stance. In doing so, I'm bound to be wrong some of the time. But in the end, you'll definitely know you've seen a story told by me because I'm not using my head. I'm using my gut. You will definitely feel me in the movie. I don't do traditional coverage per se, where meanings and statements are created in the editing. With that method, the personality of a scene, sequence, and ultimately the whole movie is often decided and or found much later on. That certainty works for many filmmakers, but... It's just not my thing. Okay, so really interesting, interesting. as well. Yeah. yeah, because you're you're seeing how there's going to be a certain approach taken to this movie that is going to be, I suppose, removed from a certain safer approach um, for other crew and and the, the actors themselves. That's such. I didn't know that he really fancies himself an auteur. And I got some news for you, Shyamalan. Um, not that I can talk, um, but. I don't feel him in his films. Yeah. I <laughs> take that Shyamalan. I know I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like I love a couple of his films, but it's actually it feels absent of mm. any stylistic thing. What I notice in his great films are that they're very cleverly conceived of, yeah, and they're executed well. But I don't see like a signature Shyamalan style, unless you want to say throwing yourself in for a cameo is is a style, because. They're very different films, and I just think he does have a good sense of of casting for actors. He does have a good sense of writing, and I trust him to to choose the shots he chooses. But other than that, maybe he needs to make maybe he needed to make room for some more creative uh, collaborators. Yeah, well, you know, this is the classic, I suppose, stereotype of a certain type of an artist. In order to have the approach they have, they have to kind of supplement it with a certain. I suppose, view of how they do things that is neither here nor there, really, Mm. um, and might even be a bit difficult to work with, but it helps them build their construct to approach it in a certain way that is is different. And that approach isn't necessarily really distinctive, like they've got their fingerprint all over it. Right, But you can certainly see how it might help them stay true to a, a certain vision in any sense that would deliver the intended result, regardless of, of that fingerprint being there. It's just there's so many there's so many directors that I can think of that really have 
distinct signature styles. And and I don't mean to sound rude, but he's not one of them. I, I just, mm. and I, I really, I, I still admire him in some of his films. Um, but it's a shame, I think, that he's a little bit pompous about it because actually if he'd been more humble and modest, like, oh, I, I have very little to do with these films. I just... I just coordinate people and, and direct the actors and my hmm. team helps me do the rest. I would actually have more respect for that kind of a statement, honestly. Well, let's let's move on to kind of explore a bit more about this duality and I okay, think let's do that. Some some answers will unfold, hopefully. Yeah. For example, um they had problems all the time because of this more abstract theatrical approach that he took to um creating this virtual village and having it sort of shoot ready all the time. Um, mm-hmm. So they shot an exterior in a certain dull natural light, for example, and they had to then do a matching interior with blazing sun outside where <laughs> the girl steps into the frame from this uh, exterior shot that's supposed to match. And um, this says a lot about how amazing Deacon's is. Yep. So here's Deacon's solution to this problem. As a reflection of the girl's confused state of mind at that moment, I suggested it would be interesting to have the camera hang at her close-up position and just hold focus on the foreground and let the background play out of focus until she comes into the foreground. That seemed to be a good way of portraying the moment, and it also helped with the problem of the exterior being too bright. So that just goes to show um, that a real professional cinematographer is able to almost park an issue. Roger Deakins is being very creative with the solution. He's got a technical problem, but the solution is very much an open-thinking solution and I think that just comes with years of dealing with those sort of solutions. And um, it, it says a lot about, I think, how how good he is as well. Even though in this movie, you don't necessarily see a Roger Deakins movie either. So Shyamalan loves to shoot in Pennsylvania. Um, they built a mini village on the pasture beside a forest. And about a mile away, they built a soundstage inside a huge inflatable dome, mainly for extra coverage and for some scenes set outside the village. And Deakins argued that much more of the film should have been shot on the soundstage because of noise and light concerns. So he's being very aware of general crew concerns, even with sound, which is really good to see that he's got that awareness and he's not just thinking for himself. Yeah. So the grip crew had to do a lot of, I suppose you could say, firefighting, fixing wind and safety issues, as well as their core role, of course. Mm. And Deacons was really frustrated by this because you couldn't even see outside the windows during some of the interior night scenes, so it wasn't even worth it in his mind. And other times he overexposed the light from the windows, again, to hide inconsistencies or continuity issues. So again, you're seeing a, a really creative solution here. They just couldn't tailor the environment to the sunlight much as it moved throughout these houses that were built on on the set. They just weren't tailored to dealing with a changing light scenario over the course of the day. Well, it is great to have a cinematographer who thinks on their feet because if you are a director like Shyamalan and you're you're so story-driven and you just want to take these long takes and let the actors kind of shine... You, you you often don't take into consideration all the technical things that can really throw off uh, the moment and the scene. And so it's great to have a strong cinematographer to be looking out for that. Absolutely, yeah. So poor Roger Deakins had to spend loads of time just studying how light was moving through the set. And that must have been so time-consuming. Again, all additional work on top of what he's there to do and surely that would have affected his his flow his way of doing things and his state of mind in working on that project well i'm glad you put that into perspective and you know i'm not as savvy with cinematographers and i don't know you know all of deacon's catalog but i will just say that in my experience when you really treat every you know crew member but most importantly every head of department as an equal in the kind of creative process I think you end up with a much better product because everybody is able to give their personal best. And sometimes that means sacrificing story points or plot points, you know, little things, making compromises and adjustments, but everybody's more happy for it. They're less stressed. And in the end, who knows, maybe it would have given uh, Shyamalan a better career trajectory. Yeah, you know, I'm not a cinematographer either, but I'm really interested by this relationship between these two huge, you know, creative forces. So, for example, you know, you have to wonder with this particular situation with the changing light, whether or not Shyamalan anticipated this. It makes you really think about him as a director. 
whether or not it was unforeseen or whether or not it was just, oh, you know, just just deal with it. You know, it's my style. Um, they had to run loads of cable under all the grass before the whole set was built to all the houses. And oh, my the, gosh. Yeah, and the perimeter as well, you know, with the, the torches and everything. Yeah, are, wow. Um, basically turning the whole location into a theatre um, where anything can happen any time in any order that Shyamalan wanted. So, Wow, geez, seriously. It's like he's a circus conductor or something he must be very tough but you know that's that's a real challenge for deacon so credit to him you know the temptation is to maybe say that that didn't look like a roger deacon's movie but we're starting to i suppose unravel some of the reasons behind this um so on one hand deacons is saying that they were very rigid with the shooting plan on the other hand the production as he called them had flexibility to be spontaneous. So if you read between the lines, you could say that both of these things really challenged Deacons, sort of locking him out of the creative process or minimising his role in it as well. And he quite clearly doesn't include himself in the production, as he says. So he must have disengaged from the process at some deeper level at some stage because of this tricky approach. Well, I think maybe we've all found ourselves there. If you've ever done a job that isn't the front man of a band or the director of a film where maybe somebody kind of treats you as just a technical button pusher or, uh, you know, somebody who's not as creative a, a, as them. And that that's never a nice feeling. So I, mm. that's a shame um, if, if, if that's the experience that Deacon had. Again, it just makes you wonder more about this Shyamalan character and, and how much, <laughs> you know... Well, this is why I... I tell you, I don't, you know, feel like it's a Shyamalan film. I think he's just, he's just been right place, right time. And, you know, I, I, he maybe fancies himself an auteur, but I wouldn't call him an auteur. I mean, he fits the category, but. He's definitely an interesting guy. Like imagine having Roger Deakins come on board and having this approach and you're kind of, you know, ring fencing him in a way. Um, But Deakins did find some opportunities to leave a mark on the movie, despite um, all of this stuff. For example, most notably, I think, is the porch scene. Beautiful porch scene. Huge oh, yeah. fog. so gorgeous. Big swathe of fog becoming this surreal light source, you know? Mm-hmm. That is kind of motivated light, but just seems like they're looking out into this abyss. It, it really looks, you know, like a space scene. Really central to how their characters are feeling at mm-hmm. the time. Again, so there's there's the core of cinematography. It's all it's all motivated. There's a reason for that, that abyss. You don't even question it as a viewer. You don't feel like you're looking into a load of fog with, um, you know, big maxi brute lights behind. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it works, I think, in that scene. That's a really good scene to call out and probably the most, like, cinematically beautiful one in there for me because I once had a cinematography uh, professor, German guy, d- express that the most beautiful part of the human body is the eye. And the reason for this is because it refracts light. And so in that scene specifically, I don't know how Deacons and his gaffer did it, mm. but I lied. Th- there's a moment where they're both kind of in shadows, but then when it gets to the peak of the kind of climactic romance, you see these alien glowing orbs in their heads, which are their eyes, mm. and they look completely different. Like it's almost like, you know, young love transforming into something mature and tangible and real. Mm. And obviously you've got the little subtext of the one girl being blind, but it's almost like she's seeing on another level. And so those two eyes uh, reflecting the moonlight and everything is, doesn't get any better than that. Like the silhouettes and the eyes and, you know, everything. Yeah, it's really well done. Um, The camera watches the action unfold from a somewhat like removed perspective and mm-hmm. then it invites the characters to come and inhabit that space. I think it starts off with a shot looking outside through a window to her lying down. Um, it captures what you perceive as this golden secret rare moment and just like a documentary it feels like a wild sort of a natural scene unfolding and the camera just so happens to be there you know and they have this amazing moment and it punches in at one stage and they have the moment and then you're released from that scene as they embrace the camera pans back to an abstract space to, and, to the chair doesn't yeah. it? to the rocking chair which i didn't get in the moment but actually there's some meaning there and i was wondering why did they do this and was that deegan's or was that Shyamalan? i really like that again <laughs> it's just i i reckon that's this abstract approach that Shyamalan has because 
it keeps you in that context of that space that they inhabit. It's not like there is a sort of culmination at the end of that and it's, it, you sort of forget where they are. No, you're very much there in that rocking chair. You're mm. you're considering the, the scene from a distance. It's really theatrical. Later in the film, I, I remember hearing her father saying, my my father, your grandfather, sat in that rocking chair and he tells the story of how his father died and was robbed of his money and da da da. So mm. actually I think that chair is some sort of a metaphor, um, you know, of simpler times, the mm. rocking chair. We see it in other films as well. Um I'll just I know it's not the greatest, but in Big Fish, um that, that town that's just secluded actually it's almost like a little it's almost like a little village, you yeah, remember? Similar, and they're yeah. all sitting in rocking chairs because yeah. life is so easy that they just sit around rocking. Um and so that's kind of the you know that like Amish influence or whatever you want to say really interesting I, I didn't pick that up at the time but there you go there's a mark of, of depth where you can pick up your own takeaway and yeah. I think that is quite intentional but it's very subtle so that washed over me I was just sort of artistically just lost in in that moment in, in, in an abstract way let me get a little more lost with you because now we're really getting to the nitty gritty and I wonder how precise you know and, and here I'll, I'll, I'll sympathize with Shyamalan here how precise did he want it? How many takes did they do of that scene before mm. it was perfect? Because I think they they captured the perfect take. So perfect that it's you don't notice it much, but Ivy at the very end of the scene lets a tear drop. But it's not from the left eye that we're seeing. It's from the right eye. Mm, she cried from the wrong eye. No, it's actually the right, it's the it's correct the right eye. eye because yeah, yeah. I believe- Good eye crying acting. Eye. I mean, imagine if Shyamalan said, I want you to cry from this eye. No, but <laughs> but what Maybe it do- could be, I mean, with this guy's level of scrutiny, what it does is it doesn't make it a overly poetic, sappy scene. It's subtle, mm. but it's beautiful. But usually when I see a tear in a scene, a single teardrop, it steals my attention. But yeah. that one was just like- yeah. Wow, she's appreciating it, but she's so damn humble and modest that she's not even going to let it overwhelm her. It's just a little afterthought in the, on the side there. It's really well done. And I and I will say, if that is Shyamalan making, you know, doing takes and trusting actors that much to get that long of a take perfect, maybe it's worth it. Maybe there is something to it. Well, two phenomenal actors and, you know, credit to them. And as well, maybe that's their moment to shine. They're so hungry. Maybe they, they feel as if they've been in a way denied certain other um leverage in other scenes and this is they know this is their moment and you know this is a really special scene for them to nail and credit to Joaquin Phoenix as well because you know he's sort of become a a slight parody of himself uh, in recent years and um Mm, mm. but you know sometimes less is more and I mean his character is quite strong in this movie not to say it's not but his approach to the character is a different thing and the way that he delivers it there is subtlety there and he knows when to just change gear yeah i mean yeah joaquin phoenix um you know he's he's come a long way and, and take him or leave him um at this day and age but he's also in signs and he also plays a really likable character who's kind of like this this the kind of young strong uh defender uh, along with you know mel gibson who's who's actually kind of a, a, a spiritually searching lost person um so and again i th- that's another thing about Shaman is i think he gets these archetypes right at least he did for for a spree of about you know three or four films where you've got the priest who loses his faith or you've got the um the blind woman who you know learns to see in her own way like it sounds melodramatic but the way he portrays them are actually really you know clever and it works yeah i mean you can see how easy it is to overdo yeah, um, certain characters and over rely on them as well. You can have great acting in in pretty weak movies, and um, Joaquin Phoenix knows about that, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, and he's also been a villain in some movies, and you know, he's he's an easy person to not like as well. But yeah, this this scene, um, it's just brilliant filmmaking. It is a moment where everything comes together, including the talent on screen, and it's the moment where the director and cinematographer produce something that is in harmony. I think with both of their approaches and skill sets that. You don't really see anywhere else in the movie. So for that scene, um, he used two big cranes with a couple of um, huge, heavy, juicy, I think they're 12 kilowatt, so 12,000 watt lamps. 
And they had to get these cranes in position well in advance because of this freeform way of shooting. If they waited until they needed them, the tracks would have ruined other shots um, if they just put them in last minute. So imagine this kind of wet, fragile grass everywhere <laughs> um, and needing to rig loads of kit and using planks the whole time so that the grass wouldn't get chopped up. Jeez. Um, these are the sorts of big challenges Deacons was having to deal with that yeah. he wasn't really, I think, expecting <laughs> to. Probably wasn't too happy about having to tiptoe around everything, but, you know, you do have to work in, in harmony, as you said. So it, Yeah, it's a, it's a credit to him, you know. And again, to get this autumnal look, um, they had to wait until a certain time of year, until the leaves had fallen. So they only had a small window of light to work with to get this kind of dull, moody look that is consistent, um, bearing in mind all of the inconsistencies of the environment they were up against. So um, there's just a quote here from Deacons on this topic. Working at that time of year, you can slay to take, and by the time the shot actually starts, the light has dropped or jumped by a stop and a half. We'd shoot the wide shots early and then plan to do other shots in a certain direction at a designated point in the day or in the shade of a building or a tree. There was one weekend when we got about 16 inches of snow that wouldn't melt, so we ended up shooting interiors and blowing out the exteriors so we couldn't see the snow outside. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew it snowed and they almost had to move to a different location, but then they got lucky and it like rained that night and melted all the snow. Yeah, so again, credit to Deacons. On the flip side, I think they wrapped in like 44 or 45 days. So there was an upside to all the hardship as well. There is there is one point in the movie that breaks down for me without spoiling it. Um, it's, it's back to the stones. And, um, you know, they do this thing that they used to do, I suppose, in the 90s where it's like a speed <laughs> ramp, but they drop it, they drop the frame rate down and it ends up looking jumpy because you're not meeting the 24 frames a second. And but yeah. I think that's because, and I don't know if this is Deacons or a po- or an afterthought, but I don't think they shot it with the intention of it being probably not no. slow motion. Yeah, so that that section for me is just more obvious than anything that you know they just ran out of time or they ran out of something. Will you know something wasn't there, and that, that's fair enough. It's not a perfect movie. It doesn't ruin it for me. It's just noteworthy in that regard. It is too bad, though, because they did such a clever job of ramping up the tension, slowly revealing plot points, but then even having you question, is it true? Have have I been told right? Maybe there is something to fear. And then it all kind of just collapses down mm. the hole from which it, you know, <laughs> Literally. laid out for it. Yeah. Yeah, without spoiling it. Great wording there. Yeah, um, absolutely. It is a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? And I can understand that. It's just, again, this is the point that it, it depends upon how invested in the metaphor of the movie you are because that metaphor is like a safety net that catches you. And if it's not there, then nope, that wasn't a good movie. Can you elaborate on that? It's like a safety net. Yeah, well, you know, the metaphor that you're invested in and it's one of your own choosing as well, whether or not you think the movie has connotations of politics or society at large, for me, that rescued me from being disappointed in the movie because of how that particular scene went. I was already thinking in another way about what the movie was trying to say at that point. So I didn't I didn't really fall where the movie fell, if can, you like. Can and, you explain? I'm curious how that was rescued for you. What what political or metaphoric statement did it for you that Well, in my head I'm kind of okay. already lost in the adventure that Ivy is on yep, in the road too. that she's taking. Me and too. I'm thinking about her persona at a societal level thinking about people working towards smashing the norms and stuff yeah um you know without going to me too about it i'm just thinking that this is someone who's representing uh, revolutionary thinking and Mm -hmm. just trying to find the edges of things and i was kind of Mm. lost in in that thought um, so I wasn't so invested in what was physically going on on the screen at that point in time although i did want it to have an outcome that was, I suppose, conducive to somebody reaching a higher level of of information and, uh, you know, a different worldview, which is what she had. And then she went back to the village. Well, it's got, it's definitely opened up some new things for thought. I mean, when I saw that scene, I had kind of forgotten how poorly it was put together. And ironically, she's, she's searching through the forest and she finds something with her hand, which is like the end of a tree. And when I saw that actually those roots, they're quite sharp and spiky, I thought maybe she was going to use those as some sort of weapon 
I had forgotten instead that she just recognizes that that's where the, the kind of gaping chasm is and she she somehow has an awareness of her space um but it almost feels like maybe a moment where they're like well we don't know what to do here mm. so you know she's blind she only has so much capacity to save herself so we need we need help from a divine source we need some sort of natural danger that can that can aid her let's just revisit that moment just briefly and then we'll move on from it there's kind of a debate of like, what are we seeing and should we be seeing it when uh, she's out in the forest and we hear things. It's meant to be psychological. I, th- I believe we're led to think maybe she's imagining things, but we as the viewer are are privy to to kind of some, some idea of what's happening. And then mm. she overcomes it somehow, regardless of what she thinks it is that's pursuing her. Um, she finds a way to trick that being and moves on from it now whether she thinks maybe it was in my head and i maybe maybe it was just her overcoming an obstacle but it's a metaphor i think at that point that is an entirely metaphorical section there where what's going on is entirely um, representative of how she feels she's being pushed to a certain point in this community i think see now i'm glad that you have that point because this is actually a really great thing to discuss. As much as I love the film, it didn't feel as much metaphoric as it felt like tying up loose story ends. Yeah, yeah. She's in the forest. She needs some sort of danger to keep the suspense up. Yeah, yeah. Here's this masked figure, and we turn it back on its head. Mm. Was it all a lie? Is it real? The danger's still there. We're scared with her. And then, like, as we've said, without kind of spoiling it, the danger just deflates. Yeah. But then we find out later what what was going on there. Hmm. And it ties up it, it's it's an anticlimax. It ties up loose story elements, but was it just there to add a little more excitement to the to the journey through the forest? I I I wonder. The, yeah, the execution doesn't quite do the idea justice, I think, because they could have very easily done some some much more internal stuff there it could have gone in other directions i think because there was so little coverage maybe of that scene you could just say that that's chalk it down to um that's the 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 flip side the sort of negative outcome of this approach um you know so it's worth mentioning and um, unfortunately it just so happens to be at a point where tension is building and kind of falls flat at this key moment and they could have just avoided that even though they didn't have coverage there's other ways that you could very quickly artistically um, interpret what was going on there that served the idea better, I think. But I like your willingness to try and look deeper. And in fact, maybe because I love the film, I'll, I'll, I'll give it this conceit. Hmm. Perhaps that moment is less about her and more about the state of the person pursuing her. And maybe it's meant to tell us more about uh, somebody who does not understand fear and goes out pursuing our hero without realizing the what he's inflicted on her throughout the film and in fact meets his own demise through his own devices you know it's great because one thing they do succeed in is she does not physically murder him she's able to uh, accomplish her mission of pushing on um without bringing him to his downfall yeah you know he, he's kind of the the maker of his own fate yeah, so credit where credit is due, but you know it's fair to say that um, that is what it is, and that that could have been done a different way. But these are all interesting ways of looking at it, and you know there's a benefit of the doubt going on here as well. Given in mind this uh, duality between the two, you know, I think that makes it more understandable, but maybe it shouldn't be. So we've covered a lot of ground there in terms of the two respective styles of the director and cinematographer coming together, and or not in certain points. Just to wrap up this section. Um, Deacons used his weapon of choice to shoot the village in Ariflex 535 with the movie cam SI for handheld scenes. And because they were willing to shoot on film in this kind of freeform theatrical way, they, they all agreed that they need to have a dailies truck so they could see the footage at the end of it every day um, to be confident because, um, yeah, they're skirting on this fine line between not getting what they need. Um, a lot was filmed on zoom lenses as well to preserve this kind of documentary approach. Maybe I'm being too generous, but... 
Um, it blended really well, I think, into the movement of the cameras, so it doesn't really feel like you're watching a lot of zoom footage. Okay, so moving on to sound. There's a lot of dynamics and subtlety in this movie, and it really helps to preserve the tension for me and not guide the viewer too much. You know, I'm always going on about guided experiences versus non-guided. Um, they give you space, which is important, because in your head, you're able to imagine your own interpretation of different scenarios unfolding. You're not forced to feel one thing or the other, which I think is important because um, that sort of traditional Hollywood approach is quite guided. Uh, I don't like that because it makes me feel claustrophobic. It makes me feel like I want to just, you know, get up and leave the cinema or turn off the film when it's forcing you Mm. down a very Mm. basic, overly simplified trajectory. And the sound is very important to that end. So Steve Bodeker, I'm not sure if I'm saying that, um, he's credited as supervising sound editor and designer, and he's done a load of stuff. He started off doing Seven. Um, He did Black Panther, uh, Tomb Raider, not that I've seen them all. A load of superhero movies. He did Bridge of Spies, which is really good. Mm -hmm. If anyone hasn't Mm -hmm. seen that, I would recommend. So he's got tons of experience. Um, And, you know, this is a big Hollywood editor who understands the importance of preserving the ambiguity. So best of both worlds there, I think. And this really comes across in his comments about this movie. So this is what he says. There is the idea of subjectivity, of fear, that's very societal and almost has a political sense to it. The village is very idealistic and perfect, but there's an undercurrent of tension and fear. Different people and age groups deal with it differently. As a result, the sound design had to range from literal to extremely subjective. It's amazing to see how Knight thinks about sound. Everything comes down to the story and emotions. So he's crediting the director's role there as well in the edit, which says a lot about um, about him, and he really has that big understanding there. Yeah. So regarding the actual sounds themselves, he really wanted to give the woods their very own sense of character, like mm. a presence alongside the actors. So that, that comes across. Definitely. It's all very naturalistic and subtle. Um, and it's taking you there through your own memories of those sounds in a subjective way, you know? It's, it's, it's not, I mean, it is slightly creepy, but it's not sort of taking you down a particular trajectory. So Steve Bodeker teamed up with uh, Frank Ulner, who worked a lot with David Lynch. Wow. Um, so, cool. he, so Ulner was sound supervisor at the start of the project, and you can see that it gives it a more experimental approach, which Shyamalan, I think, really embraced uh, being who he is. Um, they both worked on Pro Tools in separate rooms at Skywalker Sounds, which is probably the best place in the world to work on sound to picture. Um, go on the website, it's, it's amazing to, to look at as well. Mm. That's where George Lucas has his ranch. Um, they changed the name of the company after moving there. It used to be called uh, Sprocket Systems, and it was based in San Alcemo. I don't know if I'm saying that right, if you've ever been there. No. Until it had a big flood in 1982. Um, fun little fact, before the flood, they used to bump into locals in that place, and sometimes those people would give them ideas or make it into movies themselves. So there was a guy called Pat Welsh who was discovered while shopping at a camera store. And he went on to provide the voice for E.T. Wow. Which is funny. Um, yeah, and during the same recording of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford was often spotted in the in the parking lot of this place um, practicing his whipping technique. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Skywalker Sound staff of sound designers and re-recording mixers have either won or been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound and Best Sound Editing every year since Star Wars back in oh 1977. Gosh. That's incredible. In that year, Ben Burt was given the Special Achievement Award because the award or the category for sound editing wasn't yet really established. So Ben Burt is um, obviously the the master. Rockstar, yeah. But anyway, Bodeker and Ulner were able to send the sound mixes straight over FTP to um, Shyamalan's farmhouse in Pennsylvania into his Avid suite. So that was a pretty good workflow for the time. Good old FTP. Yeah. Um, So one interesting thing they did in the edit was they swapped between using mono and stereo sounds depending on whether they wanted to create a subtle sort of claustrophobia or an openness in in given scenes. Mm. So on a very subconscious level, they're taking very careful steps there in the sound edit to make you feel a certain way. It's very simple, um, but yeah, you know, it's just a nice straightforward use of um, how you can take something technical and use it to complement the story. So, um, so yeah, just one more note on the score. James Newton Howard scored oh, it. Oh, yeah. I say. Single instruments at times, like that violin piece when it's slow motion and uh, Lucius kind of c- grabs her hand right before she's going to be captured. Um, that's just lovely. I love that moment. It, it's forever encapsulated in, in that scene. Yeah, really nice orchestral score. And it does this one thing with the violins, 
the violins often one of them emerges from the kind of orchestral bed mm. and then it submerges again a bit like how the characters emerge from some of the more abstract approaches to the scenes these violins kind of mirror some of the characters in a way i, I don't know i'm reading too much into no, it. no i don't think so that it's almost a metaphor for the the brave characters because the two in that scene i just mentioned are the ones that are different thinkers. So it's almost like mm. this singular sound that's just a solo of breaking free from conformity and, and being your own, you know, single entity. I, th- I think it works really well. Like, I think what you're trying to say there. Yeah, like like voices coming and going from yeah. uh, the masses. Again, yeah. it all ties into this kind of idea or the metaphor. So again, just very well thought through in terms of how to serve that that story. Okay, so I think we've pretty much covered a lot of stuff there. Do you want to do the Six Degrees of Separation, Brandon? Oh yeah, I'm ready for it. Fire it off. Six Degrees of Separation. Okay, so um, because I'm Irish, I'm going to try and take it down the Irish route to say Brendan Gleeson was in the movie. Nice, nice. Okay, and um, Brendan Gleeson was in Michael Collins with, with Liam Neeson, yeah? Great one. Yeah, I really like that one. Um, if anyone hasn't seen that, a bit of a bit of history. Glad you mentioned that one. Uh, Liam Neeson um, plays the lead in that movie, and he was, of course, in Schindler's List. Yeah, really good one. Oh my gosh, powerful stuff. Uh, Schindler's List. Okay, let's kind of come back around. Um, Steven Spielberg directed that. So, what can you do with that? Ooh, okay. So you've linked it to a, another director. Let's see. Um, Oh gosh, I'm going through all of the characters who are in the village and I can't think of any easily who are in a Spielberg movie. That's tricky. Think hmm. of a blockbuster with dinosaurs. Oh, okay, so obviously uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think... Oh, I can't think of anyone who's in Jurassic Park. Although, um, what's, although Bryce Dallas Howard, I think, was in Jurassic World. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Jurassic World. What? All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's it. She was in the village. Let's just go with that and All right, hope yeah. for the best that she was in Jurassic World. She, she was in the village, right on. Cool. Do we have a quote to end the show with? Oh, God. I'm completely uh, Shyamalan date. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm Shyamalan. <laughs> I don't know if you want to read a quote from one of the characters okay. in the movie. Yeah. Brendan Gleeson, maybe. All right. So uh, August Nicholson says, Let her go. If it ends, it ends. We can move towards hope. That's what's beautiful about this place. We cannot run away from heartache. My brother was slain in the towns. The rest of my family died here. Heartache is a part of life. We know that now. Ivy is running toward hope. Let her run. If this place is worthy, she'll be successful in her quest. So that's been The Village. Thank you for uh, sharing that time with me, Brandon. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully many more to come. Sayonara. Today's episode was written by Matt McGuinness and Brandon Wade, thanks to Royal Holloway University London. Music by Vast, inspired by Philip K. Dick. Search Facebook for Vast Electronica. That's V-A-A-S-T Electronica with an A at the end. See you next time.